This week, Three Sides of the Coin, one of the nicest interviews we've ever done. Tom Worman, producer extraordinaire. He talks all about Kiss. He talks about Epic Records passing on not just Kiss. Don't, don't, don't Rush say who. And well, Leonard Skinner. But you're going to have to find out the whole story about it. He goes into those details. He talks about all the other bands he worked with. This is a phenomenal interview. If you love metal and classic rock, listen. Tom this is Three Sides of the Coin, talking all things KISS. I want to rock and roll all night. You're listening to Three Sides of the Everybody, welcome back to another episode of Three Sides of the Coin. This intro is going to be short and sweet. Tommy, no comments. I know you didn't have any ready anyway. I wasn't um, on the show last week. Why would I? Who? <laughs> last week was not. Last week, last week was absolutely. Actually, I'll just make this mention. Thank you for all the feedback. There's been some amazing comments that have been left about the Bruce Fairburn interview. So thank you so much, and I'm glad we could dig that up and and present that to you. But let's just cut this and go straight to this interview. We are joined by the legendary producer, Tom Worman. If you don't know who Tom Worman is, stop right now, go to Wiki, and see all of the artists that he has touched, albums he's touched. And we touch on just a small smattering of them. We talk Kiss. We talk Cheap Trick. We talk Ted Nugent. We talk uh, Motley Crue. We talk Twisted Sister. We even talk Molly Hatchet. Molly Hatchet on a kid's show. <laughs> yeah, man. Um, Tom, phenomenal interview. So much great insight to all of these artists, these albums. Let it roll and we'll see you at the show. end. Visit threesidesofthecoin.com. Subscribe on YouTube. Follow and rate us on Spotify. Subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. We appreciate your support. Three Sides of the Coin listeners, this is an incredible honor for us. Uh, we're joined by the legendary, and, and I think that term legendary is very deserving and applicable here. Yeah. Producer Tom Worman. Yeah. Tom, I, I mean... I, I just had mentioned it. We'll say it again on the record here. You've worked with so many bands and so many albums that as, as a kid growing up influenced me musically beyond anything I could have ever, ever realized. I mean, Great. Motley Crue, Cheap Trick, uh, Twisted Sister, Molly Hatchet. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. It's just, again, it's an honor. Thank you for joining us. Um, Thank you so, for having so, me, as they so say Tom, on CNN. Wow. Yes. <laughs> so the the main basis of our podcast is we love Kiss. Yeah. But we also love all music. So we're not going to force you to talk about Kiss the whole time here. Yeah. But saying that, let's start right off with so our KISS listeners don't freak out and go, what the hell? He didn't mention KISS for a half hour. <laughs> you, I mean, it, it's it's right there, even in the little blurbs about your book, how you you discovered KISS 
brought them to Epic and the label passed on them. Correct. Can you elaborate on that as to where it was you first saw them? And I really want to get into your head. What was it about Kiss that you said, wow, I need to bring this to Epic Records. These guys have got something. Yeah, I, I actually brought Epic Records to Kiss um, when they were a three-piece <clears throat> because, uh, short story, somebody brought me a, 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 a almost finished uh, a cassette of an album uh, that was independently produced by um, this guy, Ron Johnson. Um, and and he uh, he was at Electric Lady in the village, and um, he had a group called Wicked Lester. Strange name. Um, in, in that group, uh, you know, were a guy named, at the time, Stan Eisen and Gene Klein. And I, I I liked it. It was pop. It was very kind of sugar, uh, commercial, a lot of harmonies, uh, about six guys in the group, I think. And I went down to sit in on a couple of sessions at night, and I was curious about Electric Lady anyway. Um, and then I decided, okay, we should sign this band. Um, and And we did. And I saw, you know, we we paid to finish the record. It wasn't very expensive, the, the whole deal. And then before we could release the record, they broke up. And they, they then, so we put the record on the shelf and, and uh, you know, sometime later, not that long, maybe a few months, um, one of them, either Paul or Gene called me. Uh, and, and I mean, yeah, uh, Paul or Gene, then, uh, uh, Gene and Stan, um, called me and said, we have formed another band. We have a three piece. Uh, we'd really like you to come and see us. And, um, so I took my boss and my boss was a great guy, uh, very smart, not rock and roll guy. So I was the rock and roll guy, younger, um, less experienced, but he um, he came from um, Madison, Wisconsin, where he was the manager of a, a discount record store. Um, and, he, and he had a lot of uh, musical knowledge. He was a great guy, really smart. You know, I enjoyed working with and for him. And we went to the uh, rehearsal studio. I think it was on 23rd Street on Union Square. And we walked up a steep flight of stairs. And it was just us and just um, Paul and Gene and um, uh, Ace. Been P was no, it uh, Peter. 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 Peter at that time. Yeah. Yeah. And and so they were a three-piece. They were, uh, from what I recall, and this is a long time ago, they were in spandex and they had white face. I don't know if they had their final faces on, but but they were um, in costume. And uh, they put on a really nice uh, show, a little set. And then um, Gene picked up a, a galvanized bucket um, 
and and just threw it at us. We were right there, kind of in the front row. And we thought it was water, but it was really silver confetti. And uh, we ducked. We ducked and and then and then everybody laughed. And you know, it was part of their show, which was a little performance art, which was new to me at the time. I didn't go nuts for the material, but I did uh, like it. And I thought uh, a lot of people are going to like this. This is, you know, it was commercial. So um, now it was pretty we, different than Wicked Lester, wasn't it? Very well, completely different. But, but yeah. you know, they broke up because because um, Gene and, uh, you know, and and Paul didn't want to be Wicked Lester. <laughs> I mean, they decided this isn't us, and and so they. Uh, I think it was pretty bold of them, you know, to to just ditch the whole thing. I mean, here they had a record deal, right? And you know, that wasn't easy. So they said, "Oh, the hell with the record deal. We, you know, l l let's be true to our um, our musical passion and and um, do something else, do what we want." And, and now, so let, they, let me ask let me ask you real quick. So when you went in there, did you know the sound was already going to be different than Wicked Lester, that the visuals were going to be? So it was you you only knew them from the sound and the visual of Wicked Lester. You didn't know what you were going in to see. Right. I had no idea. Um, <clears throat> I don't think any of us, you know, had had an idea. Um, but they were our. They were they were our artists at the time, so um, and that's why I took my boss. And there was another guy whose name I can't remember who was briefly on the A and R staff at Epic, and he came with us too. So there were three of us and three of them. And after the show, we thanked them. And um, you know, the custom was you don't you don't really talk business there and then. Um, so we left, went down. To the street and started to walk uh to walk along the sidewalk and my boss turned to me and said what the f was that and, <laughs> and and you know i i, I sank I, I i just oh to myself i was thinking geez he he doesn't get it i mean he just doesn't get it and that this was the first of of three of, of those three passes that that he uh he made, you know, the other two being uh, Skinner and Rush. Um, the thing is that at that time, I was really powerless. Were you living I mean, in New York at the time, Tom? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. so before you go any further, though, yeah. could you share with our listeners, because I always love to get someone on the show that lived in New York at the time. Can you share with people kind of some of what was going on musically at that point as well? Because if, correct me if I'm wrong here, but even though that was something you had never really seen before, it looked like there was a glam scene going on. There was a lot of the kids were putting makeup on their face and dressing like the New York dolls. And was that, is that accurate? Yeah, I, mean, I think this may have been just a little before that. Oh, okay. All right. Um, you know, because it was like, what, 71, maybe? 70, 72, or, or, maybe. Or maybe 72. Okay. But, um, you know, it, it, it was it was 75 by the time I had, they had passed on all three bands. And Kiss was the first. 
Um, so, so anyway, it, it was early. Um, there, I didn't hang out a lot. I, I went to a lot of clubs, but I didn't uh, particularly enjoy CBGBs, you know? Well, yeah. Yeah. And, and I like, you know, I occasionally go to CBGB or Max's Kansas city, but I don't remember when they opened the bottom line, but a lot of clubs in the village and the bottom line and tracks up on 72nd street and um, Reno Sweeney uh, kind of a nightclub, but um, it was a, obviously a very vibrant music scene in New York. Everybody played New York and uh, I was very lucky, you know, to be there to get a job at CBS and and to to be there at that time. Um, right after that, we moved to New Jersey, but only because because of the crime and that yeah. that was in about seventy three or four. So when you left that that night, did you did yeah. you think this is just, that's interesting, but it's going nowhere? No, with Kiss, yeah. Oh no, I uh, I thought it was good, and and we missed we missed a, a good bet that 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 he shouldn't have passed on them, and I was uh, unhappy that I couldn't convince him, you know, okay. uh, that 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 it was potent that it had, as they said, commercial potential, um, and I like the guys, you know, especially. Gene, he was, you know, he is Gene. He's he's a bit of a character. Yeah. Uh, and he was the same then, outspoken, uh, you know, he had a he had a kind of a you know, I, I, I don't want to say sleazy, but he had a, he had a certain approach to uh women that was uh, pretty He knew what he wanted and he went yeah. for it. Yeah, I guess, <laughs> and he wasn't afraid. wasn't afraid to to tell you his opinion on just about anything. Now, Tom, Tom, when you when you saw them as as a three piece kiss after that first performance, was it? And you're looking at them from an A and R capacity for yeah. um, the label. Were you pretty much focused on the music, or did you start to get an idea for? this whole visual that could be interesting as well, or was it just the music that you really cared about? No, I really, I, I, I had never seen anything like uh, that was the first time anybody had painted his face um, uh, uh, in any band that I had seen. Uh, and certainly not, you know, I mean, spandex was spandex in those days, everybody wore something of spandex, but you know, they were alter egos. They were other other people you know uh you couldn't recognize them um you you couldn't tell the difference you could not tell that these were the same people you know you 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 could meet them before the show and then uh it could have been completely different people who came on stage uh, because there was a you know a very effective transformation but they backed it up with the music so that was that was a deal. I was attracted to both both things and 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 the uh, you know the the, the uh, visual presentation was actually um you know 
quite different from anything I'd seen before. The music was was uh, not, you know, completely different from what was going on at the time. Now, when when your when your boss said, "What the fuck is that?" and "No," right. did you basically just give up on it at that moment, or did you try and? you know, convince him a couple more times of, or when he says no, it's no. Yeah. I, uh, at that point, um, I didn't want to go to bat for something that might, um, in, in fact, this is with all in the case with all the three bands that he passed on. I didn't, I didn't want to go to bat for, for something that might turn out to be a stiff, I mean, anything could turn out to be a stiff. A&R men risk their jobs every time they make a decision. You can pass on something that becomes huge, which everybody did. Actually, I didn't. But most A&R guys do it at least once or twice. Um, so so I, I didn't want to risk losing my job because he had no apparent respect for my taste in in certain kinds of music i mean uh you know i appreciated a lot of the music that he, he liked but w which is what tell us so we kind of get a feel well boz skaggs steve miller ben sidron um you know yeah so he's not going to understand kiss or motley crew or any of that stuff no he's, no he's like no older brother almost no one in the record business understood motley crew <laughs> well yeah exactly <laughs> certainly not the head of Electra Records, but but yeah, the, I mean this was this this was something I I I I had the same uh, weakness or or lack of uh, authority or power, um, in, you know, in the case of Leonard Skinner and and Rush, both of them. But with Rush, it was money. Um, they just wanted um, more, which was seventy five thousand dollars for two albums. That was the advance they wanted. And it was wow. too much. The CBS guideline. Wow. They didn't want that. So, you know, Cliff Bernstein signed him at Mercury. Um, meanwhile, Skinner, this same man, you know, who uh, who unfortunately passed away and and whom I uh, respected and liked. Um, after I saw Skinner in, in, uh, Macon, in Macon, Georgia, I, uh, I took him again, to Nashville, to the Exit Inn, to see them perform live. And they did. And again, they brought the house down and they played Freebird. And when we uh, got out of the show, we were walking uh, across a parking lot behind the club and he said, good band, no songs. So that, you know, uh, again, he, you know, he was definite about his decision. For that and and for for uh, Kiss, so I um, I had to wait until he left and a new boss came in and asked me what the hell I'd been doing there for five years, and I told him, well, I wanted to sign Bing Bing Bing, and uh, you know he passed, and uh, what are you what are you thinking about now? Do you, is there anything that you like now? He asked, and so I. I said, well, actually, I'd, I'd like to sign Ted Nugent. <laughs> so he let me because he didn't want to be, you know, he didn't want to pass on the on the fourth 
one that got away. I got to imagine that 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 looking back or at some point that in the record label, it's like, uh, this doesn't look good. We passed on Kiss. We passed on Rush. We passed on Leonard Skinner. Um, three bands that quite argue. I mean, you didn't know this back then, but three bands that have gone on to oh, yeah. levels beyond anything anybody could ever imagine for bands. Right. Um, you know, nobody knew this, though. I mean, no, it, it's not right. I think it was public, uh, uh, you know, I- information that, um, a, you know, any specific label passed on any specific band. Maybe some people might know, but um, it it's not that it made, you know, there was so much activity and so many bands uh, being signed on uh, and being passed on that really it, it you know it, it didn't make a difference in terms of the reputation of epic records i mean, you know, and, I mean let's 19, be honest in, in yeah, 1975 though, though rush was just about to get get dumped from mercury well not when i saw them <laughs> i i don't know i didn't follow their uh you know because caress of steel was a dud yeah, and it wasn't and, until seventy six is twenty one twelve that they started moving records. Yeah. Well, I don't remember exactly when he left, but it was seventy five when I started to. That's when I signed Ted. Um, but they were, um, you know, they, I I I think they were a well respected. Um, band i don't know how many records they had made by that time but the fact that the fact that that uh i mean even without rush uh and i don't remember if 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 skinner was before or after but just the fact that at that by that point that that um they had that he had passed on kiss or that I had brought them uh, to the label and and they passed. That was enough, you know, to give me a little bit of credibility that I needed. And I had also signed REO Speedwagon, uh, and they were a moneymaker and they were out on the road. And, um, I wasn't. I was afraid for my job. Uh, I, I that's why I went into the studio with Ted and uh, hung out there really and horned my way in and became a co-producer because I wanted to uh, protect my investment. If, if Ted had been a stiff or if the first act I had signed um, under my new boss had, had, had been a stiff, then I, I don't know if I would have uh, kept my job. I had nothing to hang my hat on. Tom, I, I, since you were there um, as I'm a humongous Ted Nugent fan, um, especially the work that you did. No, I give me some, with with Derek only doing half of free for all, you've probably had to tell us before, but you know, let's face it, he's got an amazing voice. And obviously Meatloaf did an incredible job coming in and finishing the wreck. Absolutely insane great. But yeah. how two things. Why was Derek strictly money or was it behavior as well? And yeah. and was Meatloaf the first choice after Derek left? Well, it was the only choice because 
the guy who was in charge, Lou Futterman, who owned Ted's production deal, um, and he was the producer of record. Um, uh, he he had he wanted to uh, teach Derek a lesson because Derek had been arrested, I think, that night, uh, and so he couldn't. I think he was in, actually went to jail for uh, you know maybe overnight, and and Lou was um, livid, and he said, "I'm going to show him." And he asked me if I, you know, if I knew any anybody who could sing. You know, we, we weren't going to stop the session or he didn't want Derek back right now. He was going to. So I said, I, I you know, I know a, a, a guy with a great voice. I, I don't know if he's available. Um, he's really the, um, the most amazing belter, strong singer. So I called me and he was he got on a plane the next day. Um, and what resulted was what I in the book, what I, I, I called a heavy metal opera. And, and yeah. you know. And, and and he was certainly not appropriate for 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 Ted or for that album, but he did his his very best. And uh, I, you know, I don't think that many people who liked Ted or who bought Free for All even looked at the back to see that it was Meatloaf because nobody's. I, ever- I was I was one of them. I mean, because I I I'm, I live in Detroit and Ted. You know, uh, yeah. obviously, I'm wearing my double live gowns if you're here. Yeah, but uh, uh, you know that record, and let me tell you, your work on that record just makes Ted's playing and, and the layers of guitars, especially on stuff like "Writing on the Wall." I mean, to this day, makes my jaw drop. I mean, oh great! Not yeah. only is the playing incredible, but the just the layer upon layer of guitar work and the vocals. Oh my God, it's breathtaking. That's great, and it's and, and it's unfortunate that that doesn't get the same attention as some of the other things associated with that. But Jesus Christ, is that music just insane great on yeah. on that record? And again, like I said, the just the guitar playing and the guitar playing and the layering of the instruments is just uh, fantastic uh, work on yeah. all your part. I'm always. Uh... I always like to go back and listen to Stranglehold. Oh yeah, that too. I think that was the you know for me. Is that a symbol? Most satisfying. Is that is that a backward symbol doing a? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's a backward symbol, and it goes from from hard left to hard right every time. (laughs) And 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 that was because there was a CBS. It's a long story, but I had to. Oh, that's what I want to hear. (laughs) You know, we were doing it in Atlanta and CBS was a union shop. And if you were within a certain number of miles of a CBS owned studio, you had to have a CBS engineer, recording engineer at your session. And um, and I was using another, an independent engineer at the sound pit in Atlanta. But we had to have this guy come from Nashville. You know, he was a house engineer at um, at the CBS studio in Nashville. So he would sit in the in the in the lobby of the studio and read a paper and, and you know, get paid. Um, so I, I we, we there was nothing computerized at the time. So everything was manual for a mix. You'd run the tape. You'd hope you got everything you wanted to in terms of moves and pans and things like that. So um, there were, I think, 
probably four of us running back and forth and reaching over people's shoulders. So I drafted the guy. I said, please come in here. And, and every time you hear that symbol, just put it all the way over to the other side. And that, you know, that, that was a manual thing. So as I said in the book, some, you know, some mixes like that took on the appearance of a football play and you you'd have people running back and forth. Anyway, that, that was a backward symbol. Yeah. And that was uh, my, I, that was my, one of my ideas. I love backwards stuff. And Ted, in the book, there's a postcard from Ted uh, to, to me saying what, how wonderful he thought the album was. And that's, yeah, that was pretty special. Um, well, Ted you know, gave you a lot of credit. I, I've asked him about that does. in person. Because I said about the layering, he says, you know, that's just up to me. I just go and whip out a soul and be done. He's like, Tom was like, we're going to do this. We're, we're going to you know double. I mean? Yeah. Yes. He doubled yes. all he the gave, And again, this is a private conversation. He gave you a ton of credit for how incredible all that stuff. You know, out. yeah, I, I was just uh, uh, texting with him last week. Um, you know, we... As I as I said, and I and as I have to say these days, um, when we were working together and 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 doing well and um, uh, having a good time, we we never politics never came up, and and I am way at the other end of the line, um, you know, uh, politically speaking, um, you know, I I I am shocked at some of the things that that Ted says but um you know I have a whole chapter on him in the book and and I try to oh I loved it I, it was wonderful yeah why he's he's a he's a fine guy in many in many respects because I you know I try to ignore the politics we we well, had I think Ted you should on. ignore the politics about everybody shouldn't shouldn't music be about music well, that's always yeah. one of my my things about being a Ted Nugent fan. Well, people say, oh, did you hear? I'm like, well, what, what, what about when Chrissy Hine runs her mouth? I mean, can we just I, I said on the show before to the guys, I'm like, when you eat a steak, you go into the restaurant. I mean, it's a wonderful steak. Do you go in and go, hey, what are your views on whatever animal, whatever? And that's going to decide how it tastes. Or are you going to go, hey, that was a great steak. It's just like just like music. I don't care if it's Chrissy Hine, Ted Nugent, or someone in the middle. If it's a good song, it's a good song, and that's right. what I'm right. there to do. I'm, I'm I'm a consumer of music. I love music, and that's what I I don't care what somebody. It doesn't matter to me. I yeah. I want I want to be I want an artist to be judged on their art, and that's how come I made the comment, you know, about especially those records you did. And and I have one more geeky Ted question. What were your uh, what was it like working with Charlie Hune after all the success you had? He sang on Weekend Warriors. Didn't you do Weekend Warriors? Weekend Warriors? Yeah, I, you know I barely remember. I barely. Yeah, he sang the title track. He sang Smokescreen. He he did uh, quite a bit of vocal. You know much that. more about this than I do. <laughs> you know? Trust me, these two aren't surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Mark is our Mark is our resident fanboy. Ah, uh, he's a walking encyclopedia of music knowledge. Yeah. When, when I we, found out you were going to be on here, Tom, I was overjoyed. I'm like, oh, oh, this is a guy I want to sit and talk to. 
Yeah. Um, and and well, you know what? I won't hijack it anymore, but I do have like twisted sister questions and Motley Crue questions and stuff. Well, I was, so. was going to say, Tom, you know, you've worked with so many bands that we could we could talk for hours just about one of the bands. But I think one band that all of us have in common that we love besides Kiss is Cheap Trick. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Cheap yeah. Trick is, you know, depending on the day of the week, my number one all-time favorite band is either Kiss or Cheap Trick. They flip-flop. I will even go as far as saying, um, not that you were involved with it, but Cheap Trick Budokan is probably the best live album ever. It blows away Kiss Alive, Kiss Alive 2. Cheap Trick, to me, might be the greatest American rock band. Yeah, I would frankly put live at Leeds uh, above above Budokan, but that's just me. Um, I, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I said that they spoiled me for everyone else. Uh, you know, it, it, it was just it was just a wonderful thing. And and Cheap Trick probably opened for Kiss more times than for anybody else back mm-hmm. then. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they were out there a lot. I remember, uh, you know, like the first time I went to uh, one of the Kiss Cheap Trick shows, uh, I, I was so uh, d- uh, amazed and uh, entertained by the fact that um, Bill O'Coin, uh would not allow anyone to be in the hall, in the, in the corridor from the uh, dressing room to the stage. When when Kiss went from the dressing room to the stage, it was like no one is allowed to see them or to be here. And uh, I had never seen anything like that before. Uh, I liked it. Were you were you surprised though, looking back now, from seeing that little three piece in New York City to how big they got? I was surprised. Yeah, I knew, I, you know, I, I wouldn't have been surprised if they were, you know, successful. But uh, to be uh, humongous. Um, yeah, I I was surprised and chagrined. I was, you know, damn. Well, you could have been on that. You could have been on that ride. On that ride. If if I had, uh, you know, in five years uh, signed. Ario Speedwagon, Kiss, Rush, Leonard Skinner, Ted Nugent, and Molly Hatchet, and co-signed Boston, I would be king. You'd be a record label. I would have had my own label. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was very happy doing what I did. You know, that was so, lucky. So, oh, so no, no, no. I got that, cheap trick questions. We can't skip well, this. No, no, no. I'm, I'm bringing this back to cheap okay, trick. Okay, all right. So, we'll so, I'll give one question, then Tommy can jump in. But what was it about Cheap Trick that you saw that made you go, these guys have it? What what was that spark, that magic? Well, the songs were very unusual. Um, Each one quite different from the last. And there was no weakness in the band. There was nothing. It, it wasn't like, well, those three guys are good, but you need a new drummer. Uh, I, I thought Bunny was, and I still think Bunny was the best drummer I ever worked with, just as much for what he didn't play as for what he did. He, you know, he was like kind of like Charlie Watts, extremely simple, small kit, but 
beyond tasteful. Mm. And, and look at Rick. Rick. Rick's, you know, his playing, his persona, his um, songs. And Peterson was, uh, you know, a, an unequaled bass player and played with ease all these incredibly uh, multi-string basses. You know, and Robin was ridiculous. So, uh, you know, every 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 one of them was really good. Their material was really good. Their presentation was really good. I thought they were too loud, you know, live. But uh, that was just me. So everything, there wasn't anything bad about this band. You know, um, I had heard an early demo of theirs probably a year or two before I signed them. And I didn't love it. Um, but then uh, Ken Adam and he came back with, uh, you know, with another one. And yeah, and in then In Color turned out to be Rolling Stones album of the year. Should have sold 5 million at the time. I didn't understand really why Cheap Trick wasn't as big as Kiss really. You know, we, they were we, probably just a little more unusual, a little, yeah. you know, a little more musically excent eccentric almost. Yeah, eccentric. That's a good because one. And, and and to your point, because you're spot on, every song can be completely different than the previous one, and every album can be completely different than the previous one or the yeah. next one. So, you know. Music consumers, a lot of times when they find something they like, they want that again and again and again and yeah. again. Cheap Trick doesn't give you the same thing. No, uh, no, they they definitely don't. And my wife says neither did the Beatles. Uh, <laughs> it's the same thing. Well, Cheap Trick um, and the Beatles, huge influence. Yeah, yeah, there was it was quite a quite a big influence. Um, I was going to say something, but when she said that, I forgot what I was going to say. That um, happens in my house all the yeah. time. <laughs> oh, I was going to say that uh, those are my, the, the, uh, I did 52 albums. Number Numbers one and two are Heaven Tonight and Dream Police for me in terms of, of judging my work. My contributions. I I thought this is hey man, you know I don't listen to to what I I did very much, but when I do, um, you know I I listen to Al Zane repeatedly, and uh, and I listen to Heaven Tonight, and I listen to uh, Gonna Raise Hell. You know. Gonna Raise Hell is yeah for for me it's one of those songs where it's just like wow this is just a freight train coming to just barrel me over every time that song starts playing. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that, that, um, cause I'm a huge cheap trick fan. Uh -huh. And I think that dream police is probably the best representation of what they are in all of the stuff that they've recorded because uh -huh. it, to me, I almost kind of wondered if the first three records were similar to Kiss's first three records and Budokan, you know, hits and then boom, Alive hits and boom. And there's nothing wrong with it. The only the only thing for me looking at the because I was not a big fan of the first Cheap Trick record, uh, which I, will get me killed in some areas of, of Illinois, but it, it just wasn't to me. Um, 
Dream Police is, but I did want to ask you, when you're looking at the songs on Heaven Tonight, or not Heaven Tonight, I'm sorry, uh, In Color, what was your approach? Because it's it's definitely sounds different than the first record. And the whole record is really strong, but I still struggle with the version of... um, uh, oh God! <laughs> What's? The, I'm sorry, I'm having a brain fart. What's her most popular Caroline? song? Southern Girls. No, no, no. I no. want you to want me. I want you to want me. Oh the, yeah, sure. Everybody so, has a problem with that. Because... But, but what was the what was the thought process behind her? How did it end up like that versus? It started out like that. Oh, it did. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. That was that. That was the song really that they presented me with. And then they changed it radically when they when they got to Japan or right after the album or whatever. Apparently, Rick didn't like the feel of the song, okay. you know. And we've always had this disagreement, public disagreement about the piano. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he uh, alleges that uh, I brought um, the piano player in after the session and put it on without them knowing and. Um, it's great, uh, a great piano part. Well, yeah, um, the record is but, really solid. The songs are fantastic. That was just people, the one that stuck out. You know, people say, uh, "Gee, um, he." I've I've heard I've read critics, uh, you know, say, "God, it sounds like uh, like an old fashioned, um, you know, dance hall tune." That's exactly <laughs> right. That's yeah. what I was going for. That's why I didn't put a Steinway on it. I put a tack piano on it, like like an 1895 saloon, you know. Yeah. And and that's that's the way it was supposed to be. Um I don't know. They didn't like it. But that was on the first album. Then they decided to use me for the second album. And then they also decided to use me for the third album before they went to George Martin. Um, so I always wonder if they didn't like it, why, why did they let me do it again? <laughs> well, exactly. And and I wish, and, and no disrespect to George Martin, because I love the Beatles and his work, but I, that did nothing for me. The record was good to a certain degree, but it sounds, it seemed to me like that was about when they started having trouble with Epic and everything just kind of went in the toilet and they had a member leave and, and it just it changed their trajectory because I've always felt I can't understand how someone like you two can be as big as they are and uh-huh. cheap trick isn't. Right. Right. I, I, I don't either. Yeah. I, I just I really don't. And well, the, you know, there are some bands there that I work with or that I sign uh, that I thought should be gigantic and are basically unknown. Um, at least, Cheap Trick is a, you know, has a, has a, a big following, yeah, and are very and are well respected, and and they are um, musicians, musicians. I yeah, mean, everybody was, you know, everybody likes Cheap Trick, and yeah. all all musicians like Cheap Trick, you know, and, and Rick said they're everybody's fifth favorite band. <laughs> 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 well, and they're still producing records to this day. They're they're putting out content yeah. that's phenomenal, yeah. you know. But those those records that you produced, that was so much of my childhood. And like I said, I'm still a fan of theirs. I've seen them more times than I can count. Um, but that I still think that Dream Police that that could be their perfect record. It Literally. is awesome. 
not it, one bad song and it holds up from a sound standpoint. So I can put that on. It's like, to me, that's the similar to Elton John's goodbye yellow brick road. It's so freaking solid that you right. can put it on and listen to it. And it still feels fresh to this day. Yeah. You know, versus maybe some other, other artists at the time that were making records. Well, that's great to hear. Yeah. You know, I feel that way. Uh, uh, I always feel that way. I think my probably my favorite uh, song uh, of those three albums, aside from "Hello There," uh, which which I really like. I wish it was three times as long. Yeah, I uh, love it too. I like Al Peterzain. Al Peterzain. Oh yeah, does it mm-hmm. to me? Does it to me? It's it's, and I think its style is timeless. You know, agreed. It could be punk. It could be grunge. It could be, you know. I didn't realize that song went back as far as it did because that was already in the canon, meaning they were, it was already written a couple of years or a year or two before the Heaven Tonight sessions. I, I'm reading the book that matter of fact, we, we had, uh, uh, this band has no past. Oh and, yeah. And they had that in some of the early, earlier set lists. I'm like, I just I always associate that for obvious reasons with Heaven Tonight, but the song was a little bit, you know, um, before that, which I I just found I, surprised me as a fan. That's all. Well, Rick was um, Rick was good at at uh, combining songs, and uh, I'm sure that uh, you know there we did some songs I can't remember which ones that were from several years before we did them and he could resurrect them and improve them and say, we're not going to, you know, we rejected this song five years ago or three years ago, but I changed it a little and I think we should do it now. And he was that, he was good. Here's a geeky minutia question. And then I I won't hijack any more Tommy with cheap trick, but no, he uh, never took off his hat. No, 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 no. This is, this is, this is, producer minutia the lord's prayer during how are you how did that get in there what was what was, it was the story a, it was it was me screwing around with the uh, pmrc you know with but the, this was way before that though this was well, that was 77 well there was still uh, that the pmrc was resulted from all the um you know the clucking about rock and roll um Maybe, you know, I think we did it. We did it later, too. Uh, I did something else backwards later. Um, but I liked backwards. I liked doing things backwards, like the backwards symbol on, on Ted. OK, I, I was just I was just thought it was kind of like because they were that cheap trick wasn't, you know, trying to project any sort of image that way, like how Motley Crue had the whole shout at the devil thing and stuff whereas oh, you know no. this was a few years earlier yeah it didn't have anything to do with the content it, it i didn't say oh i want a prayer in here um it was i i wanted something that was uh, verbally uh, familiar that that was known and that somebody could rattle off and and i i think i used a girl um what what song was how are you is the is the song it's on yeah you talk so much you wouldn't oh. worry my pet, something like that. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, and I think it was in there, but uh, I don't know. 
it, it was in it was it was appropriate for the band because they were a cheap trick. They Rick, you know, enjoyed stuff like that. Um, let's put something in backwards and make people slow it down and turn it over and you know what whatever, um, and then have it be uh, something like the Lord's Prayer, or it could have been the Declaration of Independence, or mm -hmm. you know, some something. Tom, like Tom, Tom, let me I, bear with me as I figure out how I'm going to ask this question. Taking two of the artists that you worked with, Cheap Trick and Molly Hatchet, where yeah. you were involved with. Both those artists, right from the beginning through multiple albums early on in their career. And then you stopped producing them like Cheap Trick. You, after Dream Police, you were done. And wasn't it after the fourth or fifth Molly Hatchet album, you were no longer involved? Yeah. yeah. And, and I think as a fan, you can pinpoint moments and go, wow, that band sound just changed. It's not the same anymore. As a producer, and maybe just speaking for yourself, were you in a, a very critical part of creating those band sounds that when they decided to use a different producer, it's almost like the band became something different? Does that make sense to you? Well, every producer has a certain you know, has a certain approach it in the beginning, they let me do whatever I wanted. Basically. Um, uh, Rick got much more involved later, but I don't think they, um, it, uh, do you think that, that, well, I, 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 that I, 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 th I think to Tommy's point, when George Martin came in, it was like, okay, I can tell this is a, it's a different sounding cheap trick. Oh Yeah. Yeah. It, it 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 wasn't as rock, hard rock, in your face rock. It was a little more. It 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 had more eccentric sounds to it, and sounds and stylings to it, and even the songs. And, even yeah, the songs. And, you know, and 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 you know, Molly Hatchet. I mean, especially the first two albums, the debut album, "Flirting with Disaster." I mean, but by the time you got past a beat in the odds, it was like. Wow, they're starting. The sound is starting to change. Are they becoming? And 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 again, I'm not. I'm trying to just grasp. Is this because of the producers' potential lack mm. of input as these bands mature and go? We want to do it more on our own. We don't want you involved anymore. Because as as a fan, if you sat down and said, Mike, as a fan, what would you like Cheap Trick to record again in 2024? I'd go. Dream Police. Give me another Dream Police album. But yeah. we know they can't do that again. No. Mainly because they're not the same. You're not going to be involved with them. I mean, and and this, you know, given the fact that Molly Hatchet, none of the original members are even alive anymore, but you know, yeah. we couldn't recreate those first two or three Molly Hatchet albums, which were just, in my mind, phenomenal rock albums that don't even you know, is it Southern rock? Sure. But it's not yeah. Leonard Skinner Southern rock. This is Southern Southern metal is almost what it is. Southern hard rock, hard rock. Yeah. So that's what turned me on to them. Yeah. 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 So I, I, it's just, it, you know, those two bands come to mind because the first 
three albums, especially for each of those bands, you could sit here and go, boy, there's nothing wrong with any of those first three albums. Right. Cheap Trick or Molly Hatchet did. Past album three, now those bands feel like they're... Well, I, 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 most of the albums or the bands that I work with, I, uh, when I stopped working with them, uh, they, the sales went down, you know, except for Motley Crue, who made Dr. Feelgood, uh, which was their biggest seller. Right. Um, and maybe some others, I don't know, maybe Blue Oyster Cult, uh, a couple, but most of the time, um, yeah, they peaked. Uh, and when I, I usually, uh, it seems like I, I would leave, if if it was my decision uh, with Ted, it was Weekend Warriors. I said, you know, this is not new anymore. There's nothing here uh, that's different. Ted is not evolving. Um, and and uh, I, I guess it, it may have been the same with Molly Hatchet. We got along. I left. Um, they didn't they didn't stop working with me. You know, Ted would have continued to work with me. Molly Hatchet would have continued to work with me. Cheap Trick. Um, I don't know. You know, I don't I think, think Rick was such a Beatles fan to, to jump Rick, over to him, you know, yeah, producers. But, but when I look at when I look at Dream Police, I love every single song on that record. Okay. When I look at the next one, which is all shook up, there's four out of ten. Uh-huh. And the rest of it to me was garbage. Songwriters peak, just like bands. Um, I mean, a band can be really good for a long time, but whoever writes those hit songs, you can definitely see, you know, when they peaked, and after a certain age. Almost all songwriters, hit songwriters, have spent have have done it. That, that you know they they've written the, their best material, and and they and they just can't they can't equal that again. But they came back with one on one a few years later. I don't remember who it was that produced that record. I think that was, that Roy, was Roy Roy Thomas Baker. Okay, so mm -hmm. that was way more in the vein of what you had been doing with them. So, uh -huh. I, like I said again, no disrespect to to. George Martin, but I just think that they tried to make, I don't know, Sergeant Peppers or something. There's just too much crap on the record and it's not straightforward the way I I would hope my cheap trick records would be. Uh -huh. And then they got back to that again after that debacle. I call it a debacle. Well, he only, I mean, George Martin, you know, was considered at one time probably the best producer in the world. Um, and they only used him once. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. well, yeah. So I, I just all I know is I appreciate the stuff that you did, because to me, that was the meat and potatoes of what that those bands are. Thanks. Thank you. you. Know? Yeah, um, I, I agree. <laughs> you know, I I, th I think those were and 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 I hear it from a, a, a lot of cheap trick fans that those were the best. Those yeah. three records. Yeah. You know? I just wish they'd stop playing Heaven Tonight live because when they're in front of a Motley Crue audience or when they're opening and they play that song, everyone goes for a piss, you know, and the song is great, but live in concert, it's just, it's like, it's so slow. It's great on vinyl, but they're missing yeah. out. It's just, again, my opinion after seeing them 140 so times. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
Tom, Tom, so so Mark and myself are huge Molly Hatchet fans. I mean, uh, Molly Hatchet on the Beat the Odds tour was my very first arena tour. Ah. And and you know, to this day I will I will swear by those early Hatchet albums mm-hmm. that had Danny Joe Brown, the triple axe attack going on it. Um, I would guess that's probably a band you probably don't get asked a lot about compared to some of the other artists you've worked with, especially in this day and age. Cause Molly Hatchet. Yeah, no, you're right. kind of, you, you know, at this point they're known for one song flirting with disaster. Well, dreams on too. class, but, but on classic rock for the average music fan. But yeah. what, and again, I want to go back into your mind. How did you get introduced to Molly Hatchet? Did someone give you a tape? Did you see them? What was it about them? Did you sit here and go, well, we missed on Leonard Skinner, but we're not missing on Molly Hatchet. <laughs> you know, I, I was in Atlanta at the Sound Pit remixing Southern Girls for a single release. And I had gotten a call from Hatchet's manager, Pat Armstrong, and he wanted to bring the band up from Jacksonville to the studio and have them set up right there and play for me. What a great environment. What a great facility that that was for a live audition. So uh, they came in. We took we we, we put the mixing aside for a, a little bit. They set up. And they played, I don't know how many songs, probably four or five songs. And they were ridiculous. I mean, you know, it was like, uh, it wasn't just the, the studio. We got a good mix and it was loud and it was nice. But I I thought, these guys are really good. And Dwayne Rowland, I mean, you know, they're the number one most underrated guitarist I ever worked with. He is you you can't tell. I mean, nobody says, okay, here comes Dwayne. Uh, you know, when they're playing solos, but you can tell which one he is. He's syrup uh, on the guitar. He he was just so smooth and, and his composition was so great. It was, I mean, just him, he, or just it was just he that convinced me. Uh, I, I have to I have to work with these guys and, and Danny Joe was great you know hell yeah that's, <laughs> that's yeah come on with it he, <laughs> anyway he uh, uh, I just I just liked him uh, right away if you there's an interesting thing about uh, Dwayne um, he never I had him double every every solo he ever played. And he would do the solo and it would be brilliant. And then he would double it and never look at the neck of his guitar. When he played, he never looked at his guitar. He was just like that. And and uh, he was a wonderful guy and an amazing guitar player. Um, if you listen to uh, It's All Over Now, you know, the cover. Great cover, love it. Yep. Stone song. The solo he plays there is what Keith Richards wanted to play, but but he delivers it exactly. Uh, Keith, I'm not dissing Keith Richards, you know, 
he he was a fabulous. I mean, he 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 has an incredible feel, and he makes he created the best riffs in in in, in rock and roll. But he he's not a technician, you know, and and, and Dwayne was uh, with feel. I love I, the way that I love I love the way that they redid that too because they you know they yeah. altered it was just a great cut co- see that's what a great cover should do and and the all becomes your own version. tune yes yes well it was because- all you know at the end it was one it was it was Dave and then Dwayne and then Steve and then Dave and then Dwayne and then Steve they did this uh, I don't know I guess the each one of them played a, a, about five. Uh, eight second solos. It, it, it was it was good. It was good. I, that, to to, to me I, that was to me that was one of the most special things about the original Molly Hatchet was the triple lead guitars. Yeah, and the way they complemented each other, worked off of each other, didn't just pile on top of each other to make it sound three times louder. Right. And 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 Mark, to your point, Dreams to me is one of those yeah. special songs that really outlines what's so special about that triple guitar. It just starts out a little slow yeah, and yeah. it builds and it builds. And I describe it to people. I'm like, and I use this to describe, you know, Gonna Raise Hell earlier, but Dreams is like a freight train starting out from stop. It just... You can feel it getting up to speed and getting up to speed. And then it's it's just pounding you. It's going at full bore. And just when you think it should be ending, there's another break and it changes a little bit. And it continues on and picks up more steam. That's, I mean, and to your credit, wow. I mean, to, to, to make a song that's a cover, but yeah. makes it their own. I mean- that's that's the version of dreams to me that it's the best. Now, Tom, did you have a did you have a hand in bringing that to the band, or did they? No, no, that was the almonds, right? Yes, correct. Mm-hmm. That's a yeah. Product. So, no, they they brought that they brought that in. Uh, it's, it's incredible. It's uh, again, that's another one of those just songs that, like Michael said, it just it builds and I, that was a huge song here in Detroit, huge on the radio. Yeah. And that was huh. one when you were in the car, you're like, oh, yeah, this is good. This is good. You know, and, and like you said, it just built and built. And uh, boy, the yeah. guitar tones, too, on that at early stuff. Those tones yeah. are just you know, beautiful. We we did not. We used the opposite of Marshall stacks. We used dwarfs. The, out, the, the, the speakers were, you know, like one and a half feet by one and a half feet. Hmm. They, were, they were tiny. That's why they were called dwarfs. Um, and and uh, we got, we got these nice sounds out of those. Uh, they didn't use them on stage, but we that's what we used for you know to record. Um, they couldn't be like you know heavily distorted because there's a delicacy, a a little bit of a delicacy too, to to southern guitar players. Um, oh, for sure. For sure, you know, they're, they're they're much more musical. Uh, I had never. I I love the three guitar. Uh, uh, I, I I love the guitars on 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 the Skinner albums. Um, but 
I, I had never worked with three guitar players. You, you can hear the difference. Well, Molly had more gain in on their amps than say like, well, uh, than, than, than skin. And don't worry. I love them. But it, like yeah. Michael said, it's more of a hard rock Southern thing. Yeah. And, and, and I do think a lot of it had to do with the, the, the gain on the, um, you could tell they were, you know, using it, the, the equipment that they were. It, it, it could be um, the, the, uh, what they played was a function of how good they were. Uh, you can hear Dave Lubeck uh, play very fast and a little carelessly. And then you can hear Steve Holland play third best, you know, uh, and, 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 and his compositions were nowhere near as intricate or, or I think as interesting. And then there's Dwayne, uh, who was silly. I mean, you know, he was just a runaway, uh, wonderful guitar player. And the problem was that politically I couldn't favor one guy over the next. And I would have been really happy to, to make a Dwayne Roland album. Um, in and, your mind, was Dwayne the soul, the sound of Molly Hatchet? No, look, Dave was. Dave was the Dave. Uh, was the, the the leader of the band. The other guys were quite um, subdued, not subdued, but uh, but uh, almost um, they almost obeyed Dave. I mean, Dave was strong, and he was you know he was tough, and he was um he he's the guy he when what he said uh went um at the same time they basically never argued with me about anything i mean we you know they were so happy with with uh, their success and unfortunately it sometimes went went to their head it's it's terrible that there there are none of them left they're all younger than me by a lot Hmm. Talk, talk, uh, talk briefly about the challenge with beating the odds, which had Danny Joe Brown replaced. Yeah, well, Jimmy was with Jim. Jimmy, he was good. Um, it wasn't the same, but I thought he was quite good. Uh, by that time, you know, you're 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 dealing you're dealing with uh, with something like Rocky Eight. Uh, there, the band just wasn't, um, these, most of the bands, except for Cheap Trick, I think that, that, that I worked with, uh, were not capable of growth, uh, like the Beatles. Um, you know, they were, they, they, they were just evolving and, and, and morphing constantly. Um, Molly Hatch attended to, you know, to write the same kind of song. Um, so after five albums, you know, it just wasn't, it, it just I, wasn't. I, 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 I want to go back to guitar tones because one of the yeah. bands you worked with, to me, and I think you, you, you touched on it, I, I like early Twisted Sister and I really liked uh, the second record, um, uh, You Can't Stop Rock and Roll. And I remember when Stay Hungry came out, yeah. to me, the guitars just sounded neutered. And that was just funny that 
reading, you know, what you wrote, like you, I guess, what, what is the best way? How, how would you frame like working with them as opposed to working with Ted or, or, or Dave from, from Molly Hatchet or, because yeah. I, I, I like Twisted Sister a lot, but you said they had a hard time. Oh, with wow. Yeah, JJ. I like JJ, too. Um, you know, we got along well, but um, it was uh, it was a mystery to me. I mean, it was impossible to to get what I thought was an acceptable rhythm guitar sound. And he was the rhythm guitarist. I used to be a rhythm guitarist. It's not hard getting getting a, a decent rhythm guitar sound normally you know you 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 fool around with 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 a guitar and amp and the mic and within an hour or two you've got a you, you're ready to go this was three days it took us three days and then uh of course uh you know i i doubled i always doubled my my rhythm guitars it, it was more present and 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 just it was just a better sound. Um, that was tough. Ted, you know, he bang plugged in, play. The the Molly Hatchet guys, same thing. They had they knew what they were doing. They had their sounds. They had the, you know, they they had their technique. Um, I don't think uh, you know. I mean, JJ's a, a a nice guy, a smart guy, um, plays well, but. I don't think he was very uh, knowledgeable about um, using amps, using equipment, uh, um, playing into a microphone. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm not sure what it was, but we were lucky to to, to get a reasonable guitar sound. Honestly. It's because that that album went out went on to be their bestseller, and just as oh, a fan of their ooh. music, I thought the 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 second record sounded a lot. But, but like you said, it was almost it, it almost well, sounds like it's two separate guitar players, but it's the same guy, I think which is what right. blows my exactly. mind about. Well, I'm a pop guy. Uh, you know, the uh, the most common complaint from from bands, even though they sold millions of records that that I produced, was you know it was too light, too too pop. But we wanted we wanted to rock harder. They all did. Um, you know, and and uh, I'm sure uh, D felt the same way. Uh, you know that it was too pop. My job was to get bands on the radio. It was to well, get, you did it. it. Mm -hmm. If you wanted to sell millions of records, you needed a hit single, and I made a lot of hit singles, and yeah. and a lot of actually a lot of uh, power ballads that, that that I resorted to with with harder uh, playing bands. But you know, the, the, the getting them on the radio sometimes required smoothing them out a little. You know, I mean, AM radio would not play uh, your standard Twisted Sister song. No. You know, b before Stay Hungry. So then, how do you deal with the mess that would be Motley Crue? That was <laughs> way to go, Tommy. <laughs> what well, that. The, they were uh, reasonably uh, res responsible and productive in the studio. Uh, it was out 
it was when they were not in the studio. Uh, when you, you know all that stuff you the wheels hear come off is true. Um, I, I didn't spend much time with them outside of the studio. Um, didn't want to. You know? <laughs> I don't blame you. But but uh, you know Mick. Speaking of guitars, perfect. He was always well prepared, straight, and um, very good. You know, uh, I he would come in, and we would do a song. He would have uh, every note of his solo planned out. You know, he would play it, and it'd be great. Um, he was good. I mean, he's under under appreciated too. I think so too. I agree. Yeah. I, I like the sound and, and I'm a pop guy as well. I don't yeah. like heavy metal as much. There are some things right. elements I do like, but I grew up with the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and all that sort of thing. Yes. I've always liked Motley Crue because I found them, they filled the hole when Kiss kind of fell off the planet a little bit along with Van Halen. But yeah. as a fan of the band looking at the records, if you, if you take, Shout at the Devil, Theater, Pain, and Girls, Girls, Girls. All three of those are vastly different sounding records to me. Yeah. Why? Mm -hmm. Well, mix mix uh, sound changed a lot from from you know, and and it was a different engineer too. Um, some things you can't help in terms of changing. I mean, I, the hardest thing to do if you're a producer would be to uh, duplicate exactly the the last album. Well, yeah. You know, yeah. things change the guys. It's a year later. Um, the, the guitar tech is different. The guitar is different. The amps are different. Um, Tommy stayed the same pretty much, you know, Nikki played the same bass. Um, you know, Vince just got, I, it was really hard with Vince. But, but um, you know, the guitar is the mainstay in that band and, and, the, and the guitar and the drums. And um, Mick is the one who changed. And I think for the better. I love the guitar sound on Girls. Most of the fans prefer the guitar sound on Shout. Yeah, see, yeah. I'd much rather have the Girls, Girls, Girls. In fact, when you heard the song Girls, Girls, Girls for the first time, did you think, oh, this is going to be a hit? Yep, I did, and 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 that doesn't happen much. It happened with every rose has its thorn. Okay, and, and it happened with girls, 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 and it happened with cat scratch fever. Um, you know, the first time you hear it, you, you say, "Oh boy, we have a single. At least we have one hip single," and you and you wind up um, almost all the time. Um, you know. I hear those songs in rehearsal. We choose the list of songs that we're going to do. And very predictably, you know, I will wind up spending 40% of the of studio time on the, on the single, on the one that turns out to be the most promising single. And then, you know, the ones that are number 10, 11, and 12 on the list, they don't get that much attention Right. You know, well, what, how, how did Jailhouse Rock end up on the record versus just say another Motley Crue song? I don't know. They we 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 did a few covers, right? Smoking and mm -hmm. I don't know. J Jailhouse Rock. I don't think. 
Yeah, that that's live be, on the. It's live on girls. Yeah, that's a bonus. Uh, yeah, that's a bonus track. I didn't do. I don't think I did that. Okay. Hey, can yeah. you elaborate? And and when, I'm not looking for dirt here, Tom. But can you elaborate on? Dirt. You know, you kind of casually went with Vince. What was he? Was it he just didn't want to be there? You, or is it you just he struggled in the studio? Working with Vince Neil. Yeah, he didn't know about conditioning uh, or training. He would, you know, he liked to party. He would party. And then he'd come in and and try to sing, you know. And uh, sometimes he, he, he made it. He was a game guy. He was, uh, you know, he, he was a hard worker. But he wasn't in good shape. And uh, he had a lot of pitch problems. And Nikki would sing to him uh, sometimes, uh, and uh, he he just didn't say, "I have to sing tomorrow. I got to go to bed now." You know that wasn't that just wasn't Vince. Uh, you know, Vince once said, he said to me, "If if if it wasn't for this band, I'd be the guy who brought you your beach chairs." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, he was very, he was, you know, he was kind of yeah. just a happy-go-lucky guy. And, uh, you know, things he was a California surfer dude. Yeah, right, right. It's like getting in a band with Spicoli. Mr. Hand, Mr. Tom, you know, we could go on forever here, but we should wrap up. Let me ask you one final question here. Of all these bands you worked with, if you had the opportunity to go back and produce one more album for one of these bands that you've worked with in the past, who who do you think would be the best band to do one more album with? Oh, Team Trick. Without, without a doubt, you know. I mean, th there are two or three that I would really like, or, or the producers. I don't know if anybody's heard of the producers mm -hmm. they 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 were the uh producers and mother's finest were the two two of the most wonderful bands i've ever heard and uh you know they're they wound up as cult bands but mother's uh, finest still touring yeah yeah they, they do and 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 possibly the producers still play but anyway of the hits uh it would be cheap trip well, I have a couple of questions. I can't let you go yet. Okay. <laughs> All right. First one, I think some of the most well-produced sound right now in a record, and you may or may not be familiar with this band, is Garbage. Yeah. Um, was that Stupid Girl? Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's the, the only one I, I, I remember. I like that song a lot. Yeah. The layers and the texture was unbelievable. Um, and the other question I had is, is, who haven't you worked with that you would have loved to have worked with? Tom Petty. That mm. that, that would be meat and potatoes for me. Okay. Um, you know, great band, great guitar player. Pop. Uh, great, great songs, great vocalists. I mean, yeah. you know, and, and, and a self-contained unit. I just, I just, I, I would have done. I would have been able to, to, to sink my teeth in, into that. They didn't apparently need 
me, you know, but but it would have been fun for me. Oh, yeah. Well, and that's and, that was and, what the pressure was all about. And a lot of those bands, I mean, to answer that question, most of the bands that I would tell you I wanted, I, I would have liked, to, I would like to have worked with, wouldn't need a producer at all. You know, The Who, Eagles. <laughs> yeah, but it doesn't doesn't matter. Everyone needs somebody. So well, you know, well you've got such yeah, a great track record. I can't imagine you couldn't go with uh the Eagles and and help them make a great record if it was I still... don't know. They're right. so pretty great. Tom, Tom this, this what you just mentioned there brings up something we've asked other musicians and producers we've spoken with, but is is it realistic to think that bands should be able to produce themselves or do you really as a band do you really need to have that fifth member, the producer, who can tell you, this is great, stop what you're doing, this sucks, we're throwing that song out. Because left to their own, and we and circling all the way back to Kiss, this is something I've said about the last two albums that Kiss released, Monster and Sonic Boom, which were basically self-produced by, by Paul. They're missing that little bit of extra finesse that a producer puts on an album yeah well is that is that a fair statement that bands really shouldn't be producing themselves i, I yeah th this producer thinks that's a fair statement because <laughs> um, well, you need someone that with an outside point of view yes yes and don't you and and there i i don't think there are many bands that suffered that 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 would have made a better record without a producer, even a, even an, an an average or poor producer contributes something to 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 making a record. It's it's not easy, um, you know, producing a record. It's scary, actually. You know, labels giving you back then label gave you two hundred thousand dollars, which was a lot of money, in you know, in the seventies. And they said, go, go make us a hit, you know, a lot of pressure. So you, you know, you work hard at it. You, uh, you study it, you, you, you do your best, you, you put in long hours and it, it, it has to help the record. Um, you know, some, I mean, look at, God, I, I don't know, Cheap Trick. I think they redid something, um, and and Twist and Sister redid their whole album. Mm -hmm. Well, Cheap album. Trick redid in color. You know? Cheap Trick redid in color. Oh yeah, with Albini, right? Yes, correct. Yeah, with Steve Albini. Yeah, uh, I don't. I, I think I heard it once, but you know, again, um, I think what I think there are very few bands that could have that that were very successful that could have produced themselves. Uh, you know, Bill Simzik helped the Eagles, uh, uh, and I'm sure, you know, there were three or four great, uh, great engineers who worked with the Stones. They weren't necessarily producers at the time. And then there's Glenn Johns, you know, I mean, look what some, I mean, some producers are just artists, you know, Glenn Johns was my hero my my uh role model how could he not be I mean, jesus christ the, yeah his his legend 
you know, just. Yeah. And, and so that's what, when I said, I, I want to do what he does because he made who's next and he made the Eagles first album. And I said, if, wow, this, <laughs> these bands are not at all similar. Uh, and look what he did with, with both of them, you know? So, so I, I yeah, I think 90% of the time, at least the, the producer is, uh, is necessary or, you know, a help. He's a benefit. Um, I guess the Eagles could have made their own album. You know, look, um, sports by Huey Lewis and the news we didn't have a producer. So you can do it. And that you know, damn good album. Yeah. But, uh, but there's yeah. not many that you can give us examples that that did it. The first That's Boston right. record. Didn't Tom pretty much hand that in? He did everything. Yeah. So I mean, he did everything. John Boylan, you know, was, you know, he was there. He was, he was a supervisor. He, I don't, I don't know how much he actually contributed. I know that they took, they took some of the demo tracks, I believe. And I think Kramer said, I think they wanted Kramer involved and he's like, what am I going to do with this? It's fucking perfect. Really? It was. It was clearly the best. Uh, the, more than a feeling was the the best demo I had ever heard by 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 far. And, I mean, I was just dumbstruck. Uh, it was unbelievable. They and and and, it, and they dropped it in our laps. <laughs> Crazy, right. Tom. This has been fascinating. Uh, it's been it's been an honor Fun. to talk to somebody who who's been involved with so many albums that we grew up with that we still listen to day after day and week after week. Um, You know, let, let's make sure we remind everybody, you've got a book that everybody needs to get. It comes out on November 21st, right? It's called turn it up. My time making hit records in the glory days of rock music. Uh, I'm assuming it's available anywhere books are. Well, right now you can pre-order it. Uh, Which I did. <laughs> yeah, and, and, good. And and yeah, uh, in real bookstores, if there are any left, y- y- you can you can buy it. Yeah. Are you going to be doing any sort of a book signing tour? No, um, I don't want to. Uh, I really don't want to leave this house. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing a little something at the bookstore here locally. I'm, you know, um, I'm doing a reading. Uh, I may do some more. I don't know. Um, that then a book tour, that's, that'd be nice if you were, you know, like Tom Clancy or, you know, a huge author. But um, no, I'm a first time guy. Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm lucky. I'm lucky to have a book out. And and the, the the main reason I did it was to convince people, tell people why the music of the seventies and eighties is so great, you know. And it is. Thank you. It is. Yeah. It is. And, and, and so I'm no, I'm I'm doing a lot of uh, uh, interviews and a lot of podcasts, and, and and that's the way it's done these days, really. And and there's something called a radio tour, that yes. that was set up uh, for a few of them. Uh, for for me, I'm not sure what it is, but 
It's I think that's basically you just you're just calling into local radio stations and doing uh -huh. interviews on the air with people's local radio shows. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Scary. <laughs> you know, dude, are you kidding me? You did great today. You're gonna be just fine. Oh, this is yes, yeah. yes. The, the stories, the history. It's been fantastic. Um yeah, I mean, when it comes to classic rock, there isn't an album that you work with that some classic rock fan isn't going to go. Yeah. That one's pretty damn good. Okay. That's nice. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, do you, do you have a website? Do you, anything that you want to drive people to or just go buy the book? Well, yeah, go buy the book. It's, it's a, it's a lot of people who have read it uh, at this point uh, really found it entertaining. And, and the term that they've used a bunch is an easy read. Uh, they, you know, they said it's not too technical. It flows and it's very entertaining. So, you know, most people finish it in a couple of days if they start and they just keep going. Um, I think a lot of people are uh, probably a little surprised that a record producer can actually write. You know, so that's it. Well, you can you you can make great music. So why couldn't you write? And, well, I can't write any songs. <laughs> But you know a great song when you hear it. I, I try. Yeah. Yeah. Tom, once again, thank you so much. This hey, has yes, been a thank true you. pleasure. True pleasure. Thank you, all three of you. Thanks a lot. It was fun. I don't know what to say, guys. First of all, Tom is one of the nicest people. Um, great memory, great recollections. And I don't dude, he's worked on so many albums that are just critical to music just mm -hmm. music in general from and we we just touched on just a few of the bands he's worked with i mean we didn't even talk about poison or jeff beck Ooh. or boston poison mark come on that was your favorite band there um and, you know we could have done a whole episode here of just cheap trick and listen Thanks for bearing with us, Tommy. But that Molly Hatchet discussion, I absolutely oh, loved I've it. Oh, I've got no issue with that at I, all. I, I loved it because, as I told him, I got to imagine not a lot of people are picking Tom's brain about Molly Hatchet these oh, days. Oh, I, I, I was happy for you. I thought when I heard he was coming on, I'm like, oh, Michael's going to have some Molly Hatchet questions. I got no issue with that. I just like to chuckle at Mark because he's just such um, a fanboy. Mark, Mark, Mark goes fanboy when that opportunity presents itself. And Mark, you... It is proud again. You remember sixty when you're standing behind that rock? What was that made of? Do you remember that sound that went? What was that? <laughs> he knew right away what I was talking. He about. knew. He knew. He knew. Um, listen, he's somebody. All... He's somebody I would love to talk to you like for hours because yes, I I I, I asked about this many of this yes. many questions. I know. I was yes. very proud of you. You well, were you were very well restrained. Because... Put it this way, like when 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 Roger Whirl was on, I mean, it, you guys would admit this. You didn't have a ton of stuff to ask. I had a ton, so it was easy for me. Yeah. This one, this week, we could have all, each we taken all over. had yep. a ton to ask them, and I'm like, I can't hijack this one. I just can't. It's just yep. not right. It was so. very nice of you to consider our feelings too. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, let let's let's throw out the just the most obvious homework question: What album that tom warman worked on is your favorite i can't pick there's no uh, fuck the rules 
I'm, well, I'm, I get, we I'm getting a ton of them. I no, no, I, 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 I would say it depends on the day of the week that you ask me. Yes, I, yes. I think, yeah, it would generally be something that would include Cheap Trick, Dream Police. It could include first couple Molly Hatchet albums. Um, it could definitely include Shout at the Devil. Um, you know, but it it could change so much. That's because he's worked on so. It's not like he worked on just two albums that became very big and popular. I think I, what I, I what his 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 bio said the records he's worked on have went on to sell fifty three million copies. Oh yeah, well you know and he worked with he did Cocked and Loaded for L.A. Guns. That's a freaking great record. I mean, there's just so many. There's so many. I, I, I will tell I mean, since most of the of the, the people who would listen to this show are at least familiar with Stranglehold because it's on the radio and stuff. That song, Writing on the Wall on Free For All, that is quintessential what a producer helps to do. The guitars are layered. Meatloaf is singing his fucking ass off. And just the You'll hear one guitar just does nothing but the toggle switch. The next one's just playing a chord. Then Ted's playing the, it's it, the layers on it. And it's, I mean, again, like he said, they worked on that stuff together. It, it really is, especially if you have good headphones. That's, that's the kind of stuff that just to this day, I've heard it a million times. I want to hear it a million and one, you know, I can't wait to the next time that I hear well, it. Well, you know, I think, Tommy, you basically brought it up when we were talking about Dream Police. That's the sign of an incredible album, incredible song, when 40-plus years later you can put it on and it still sounds as fresh and exciting and you still get the same goosebumps on your arm as you did when you first dropped the needle on it 40-plus years ago. Totally, totally. And there's not a, it's only a handful of those, you know. It cheap that that Dream Police album is perfect start to to finish. It um, it, it, it in in my mind, if somebody said, "What is the studio album by Cheap Trick that best represents them?" to give to somebody new who doesn't know what they've heard from Cheap Trick, Dream Police is where I would send them to start. Then you go. Then you then you go to then you go to Budokan. Oh, I would I'm studio. I go heaven studio studio. I would start dream police. Mm, that's that's a toss up for me. I think I think dream police sounds better or sonically better. Um, but I mean, I, and, and, and listen, I, I'm only going off of my personal taste. I know when I go back to listen to cheap trick albums, it's the Dream Police album that I always will go back to and listen before the other two. Right. All the time. All the time. Dream Police just has never let me down. The thing is, though, with Heaven Tonight, is there songs on there that I always like would wish were on Budokan. You know, California Man, uh, um, uh, Top of the World. I mean, there's classic cheap trick songs that didn't get the exposure that other songs the did whole freaking dream police record is that but no no you're, you're absolutely right Tom. i'm just saying yeah. though that that era for the band 
that's something we should maybe do on the show. And I know we got going. We should pick like our favorite eras of bands, not just Kiss. Like an an era could maybe be the three albums or a three like because Cheap Trick's a great example. That from from in color to the end of, and I'm talking just studio records from the from in color to Dream Police. I don't think there's a bad song on those three records. That 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 that's a that's a great topic. It's something that um, Eddie Trunk did on his show in the last month or two. Like, I can't remember how he phrased it, but it's the best three album run by a band. And I've always thought that would be a fun discussion because you got Cheap Trick in there, you've got Molly Hatchet in there, you've got Kiss. I mean, take Van Halen. What what band has in your mind, the best three album run that never lets you down when you go back and listen to those three albums. We don't need to get into it now, but I think that no. would be a fun, that would be a very fun topic. Yeah. Uh, Liz, I'm now two texts in dinner on the table. All right. So. All right. So there you go. That's your homework. What Tom Worman produced album involved album is your favorite that he's worked on. Leave that homework. That's it. Three Sides of the Coin. We'll see everybody next week. Do you have something to say? Leave a voicemail or send us a text message. Call 320-515-VOICES for Three Sides of the Coin. Provided by LarryDavisVoice.com and by JessicaMarsVoice.com. That's Mars with a Z.